Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Let's sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... (laughs) Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> Mark Kenny with you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri First Nations people and, of course, ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations, from whence comes Dr Maria Tuflaga. Hi, Maria. Oh, hello, Mark. How are you? I am very well, thanks, on this uh, first day of Parliament. And also with us is Professor Frank Bongiorno. Welcome back, as always, Frank. Oh, thanks, Mark. Lovely to see you. Now, I don't think you've been on Democracy Sausage since the advent of the Fifth Republic, (laughs) uh, that being the election of the Albanese Labor government, and already it feels like sort of a different country, doesn't it? It does, and I guess now with the sitting of Parliament that those differences will be dramatised. But, uh, yeah, look, um, you run into Canberra public servants and they seem at least under the impression for the time being that they might actually be able to achieve something as they go forward, and that's... A nice feeling, I guess, if you've um, been a public servant in this town for some years and have felt uh, as if you're running into brick walls. Yes, there's there's many things around. Of course, as, as I say, we, we're speaking on Tuesday as we're recording this, and uh, the parliament has been going through a uh, through the sort of early stages of quite a lot of ceremony that marks the opening of a new parliament. Just, I wonder if I could ask you, this is probably an unfair question in a sense, because it's asking a historian to, to, to sort of weigh events contemporaneously, and we haven't seen how they play out and, and so forth, but uh, how significant is this change uh, in, in a historical sense? We don't see it happen very often, uh, opposition parties winning from from government. I, I sort of joked about it being the Fifth Republic, but... Mm. Which, which of course, uh, there is now going to be. There is a minister for the republic, which is an interesting development in itself. Has some monarchist complaining that uh, you know suddenly there's a minister of the crown dedicated to the removal of the crown. Uh, nice line, nice try, but uh, nonetheless, it, it, fifth in the sense that uh, there's only really Labor's only done it five times. Uh, well, this is the fifth time, so um, it's a hard thing to do to come from opposition into government, and uh, you know I've. I've witnessed that process in 
2007. I don't remember it from from 1996. I mean, I don't. I wasn't, you know, sort of in attendance. It's a big thing. It is a big thing. Yeah, they they don't happen terribly often, and they're even less frequent for Labor. Um, so yes, the change of government matters, and uh, we'll see how much it matters. I guess in the the time ahead. I mean, at the moment. The government looks to be very much a captive of forces mainly beyond its control. Some of them are inherited problems from the last government. Some are problems that are simply a part of the global environment at the moment. But in some ways, the, the change of government is the least of it, really. I mean, uh, that was an earthquake election. Um, we now have a, a primary vote in this country divided into three more or less equal parts, and that is extraordinary. That's never happened before, not since the arrival of the two-party system in 1909, 1910, and it'll be incredibly interesting and stimulating, I think, to see how that plays out in the parliament, but also in the electoral politics ahead too. So, you know, how will Labor work with or against the Greens and vice versa? What role will the Teals play in this? Um, they don't have the numbers to hold the balance of power, but um, they are clearly a force to be reckoned with even without those numbers. And uh, will Labor be able to uh, leverage uh, agreements with the Teals against the Greens um, when they go to the upper house with legislation? How this all works out, we just don't know at this stage. And, and then, of course, you have a Liberal Party that is in I would have thought the deepest crisis really since the 1940s. And again, that, that, that will also be absolutely fascinating. Yes, Maria, it's, it is interesting, isn't it, to think about this in, in terms of uh, well, well, that challenge for the Liberal Party now plunged into opposition with a, a great deal of alacrity, even if the, the new government wasn't embraced with the same sort of alacrity, because as Frank said, there was a sort of a spraying of the, of the vote, a sharing of it between these thirds rather than you know, the normal kind of binary, I suppose, that has, has um, uh, characterised Australian politics for, for a century or more. But nonetheless, uh, there is uh, yeah that deep problem for the Liberal Party, and there's that sense that uh, things have changed. We don't know if they've changed permanently. Of course, we don't. You know that that turns on what happens at the next election, what happens between now and then, what happens at the next election. You know, I, I raised the question in a piece I wrote recently about you know what is the most significant change here: the arrival of the Greens finally into sort of the lower house in numbers, um, which which is a significant development after talking about it for a long time it's finally finally happened with those three seats gained in in Queensland but uh, the teals as well I mean they've eaten into the Liberal Party vote in in its most treasured heartland so big big changes yeah I think that's a that's a really good question and honestly I, I don't think I could um, compete with Frank's um, elegant summary there but I guess uh, what I would I would add is this election's really interesting because it's sort of, if you think about it, kind of made visible some processes that have clearly been a long time in the making. On my bookshelf, I have a copy of the 1990 election study kind of review um, done by academics, and that was declared environment election, uh, which I'm no doubt will amuse you, Frank, um, given um, what what sort of since happened and um, the role that uh, Graham Richardson played in, uh, I guess, Making the environment an issue, um, which which Hawke um, was able to beat um, Andrew Peacock um, on. But if we look at 
I think you raise an interesting point there, Mark, and, and I would say two things about it. Like, uh, if we look at the teals and the greens as a block, right, a sort of uh, 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 an environmental block that actually sort of cross-cuts traditional materials cleavages around income, then, yeah, like I think this is an important potential turning point. I do think it is predicated on obviously what happens at future elections. But to sort of circle back to what I was trying to say at the very beginning, um, this election seems to have finally crystallised long-running processes around the way Australia's electoral system works, right? So one of the few quote-unquote laws that we have in political science is called Diverge's Law, and it basically says that the electoral system drives the party system. So if you have a majoritarian party system, um, like you do in the UK, for example, you'll, you'll produce like a two-party two stable majorities at least. And in Australia, we have our Senate, which is proportional, as we everyone knows who listens to this podcast, but that actually creates a different logic, right? And, and what has been really interesting is that over decades, we've seen the Australian population come to understand this. And it seems like that that sort of sensibility that people have developed in the Senate, we, you know, we've been voting in different ways in the House and the Senate for at least 30 years now, longer, and the parties have come to accept that. But we seem to now be transferring some of this desire and some of this uh, understanding and manipulation, strategic voting um, in the lower house too. And so it will be really interesting to see how parties respond. Um, it will be really interesting to see how the Liberal Party responds, given that their role as the official opposition remains in place, but um, their, I guess, you know, dominance and weight that you would expect to have as the, the sort of official opposition isn't quite there in the same way, you know, because the chamber has been rebalanced to these, you know, the significant crossbench, including the Greens. I really like that um, that term you used, cross cuts, uh, cross cutting uh, the the sort of materialist income balance or whatever it is of the of the of the electorate. Is a sense in which climate was the sort of crystallizing issue uh, that you know for that that process, so that we get this. When we look at what one of the things we can clearly say out of an election that that seemed quite turbulent in its result, um, you know, quite mixed across the nation. Uh, was that there was a consistent vote for candidates who were looking for serious action on climate change. I mean, a lot of discussion about this for a long time, but suddenly we had candidates, whether it be Labor candidates advocating the 43%, which the government is now seeking to you know, bring into law, whether it be the Greens advocating a stronger position, the Teals advocating a stronger position, other community candidates advocating a stronger position, very strong Sort of almost, you could say, sort of two thirds of the electorate, somewhere like that. Um, it's probably a bit of an exaggeration because there are, of course, um, you know, One Nation and 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 other independents uh, that were contesting the election. But nonetheless, very clear sort of delineation there in terms of uh, the issues, even if it led to a much more mixed picture in terms of the electoral result. Frank, yeah, I agree. I mean, it was a landslide election against the coalition and against mm. uh, a lot that the coalition stands for. And uh, absolutely, I mean, I wrote a piece shortly after the election in which I said, you know, this was in many ways the most significant shift to the left since the, I suppose, the combined elections of 1969 and 1972. And, and part of my reasoning there is the way in which that issue of climate change and energy policy has become a defining issue um, in Australia, probably in ways that that is unusual, you know, or ways that are unusual 
internationally, but it is an absolutely defining issue, separating kind of left from from right, and 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 essentially the Liberal Party made it so when they selected Tony Abbott as their leader more than a decade ago. And I think if we look at things broadly in that sort of way, it it was a shift to the left, but yes, a particular kind of shift to the left in which the issue of climate change was critical. The other issue, of course, is is integrity and corruption. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the two issues where I think you could say that there is an overwhelming mandate for action are those ones around climate change and around an anti-corruption commission and a broader redesign of of you know the integrity systems at the Commonwealth level. And I don't think any any anyone's going to be able to get around that. That also poses real challenges for the coalition because. They're probably now reconciled to the Anti-Corruption Commission, um, although they'll no doubt have plenty of things to say about its its detail along the way. Particularly its ability to to investigate retrospectively things that have happened in previous to the to the law coming about. Yeah, there'll be there'll be issues around that. Although, late, in a sense, that might be avoided simply by the expedient that um, Labor appears to be adopting, which is not to define a kind of. Um, uh, a sort of retrospectivity at all, basically to leave that to the commission when it's when it's formed. I think that's uh, Dreyfus's position at the mm. moment, as I understand mm. it, and that that may obvi- obviate some of those issues. I think there are likely to be bigger arguments around the the, the whole issue of public hearings, which has always yeah. been it's long been controversial in relation to the New South Wales ICAC, and 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 there'll be a lot. I think still to be said around issues of reputation and and so on that 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 tend to come up in that sort of context. But that said, a strong anti-corruption commission and strong action on climate change were surely the two things that came out of that election. And any backsliding around that, I think, is going to exact a pretty heavy electoral price for for anyone who tries it in in the the time ahead. Yeah. It's unfortunate that the coalition set itself um, or couldn't resist the temptation to to sort of go for that retrospectivity um, when calling an inquiry. I mean, if you recall, there was the inquiry into the home insulation scheme. Yes. Um, and then I've forgotten precisely what the um, union-based one was about um, in its specific terms, but the I think that AW one was also- Royal Commission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that was that to do with the- you know, Gillard's building stuff. Well, I've it was forgotten. around corrupt. It was the whole issue of yeah. trade union corruption. And, and uh, uh, yes, it delved back into things that Julia Gillard had done as a lawyer in the, what, early 1990s? Correct, uh, yeah. So, yes, I mean, the, the coalition isn't on very strong ground in complaining about retrospectivity, I would have thought. Yeah. Though I, I doubt, um, given uh, one of the admirable qualities is their sort of lack of shamelessness. I doubt um, I doubt this will restrict them in their maneuverability and decision making. But yeah, I think what you said, Frank, is really kind of important, right? And, and and that's because, you know, climate change is like just much bigger than the environment. You know, like I, I made reference to that book um, from 1990 and, and the environment really then I think kind of meant, you know, like green spaces and picking up litter and, you know, a little bit about water, right? Yeah. You know, and, and now cli- climate change is um, – about the future of the economy, about human health, um, and about how society is like going to be organised. Given that whole swathes of uh, places where we have built homes 
may actually not be able to sustain them because they are inundated repeatedly or they are too close to um, habitat and, and bird. Yeah, and, and, and when we talk a lot about disruption, we've been talking about it for the last couple of decades, but, I mean, climate change is the ultimate disruptor. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a killer. It's a, um, it's a, a bringer of uh, tragedy on a, on a colossal scale, and we've seen that. We've seen, uh, you know, recently with the, the heat waves in, in, in northern Europe, for ex- or in Europe, uh, for example, and southern Europe as well, uh, particularly, um, pe- many, many people dying, far more people dying from heat waves than die through extreme cold events. Uh, you know, this is a thing that um, often escapes attention because it happens over periods of time and in and in kind of really geographically disaggregated ways. Whereas, uh, you know, with a storm or an earthquake or whatever, they you know you get this sort of death toll the next morning. And and I'm not sure what the what the process is there, but uh, in terms of uh, you know the human psychology of it, but we seem to kind of you know underappreciate just the the damage of those things and of course we've seen in this country you know devastating floods follow you know following not so long after devastating bushfires we know that climate's changing all over the place and this is uh this is a major disruptor as you say Maria you get this whole areas now which are uninhabitable and and people holding houses there that are uninsurable because no one will write insurance for a house that's got uh you know got a got a high chance of of being washed away or being inundated or some, something. So, and there's also, the, the, I mean, consider climate change's entanglement in the biggest foreign policy and security issue that Australia faces, or foreign policy issue, I should call it, that Australia faces, and that's relations with with China. Mm. Um, the the um, you know, obviously there is a, a great game going on in the Pacific of, of rivalry um, between China and the West for, for influence. And that issue is utterly entangled in the existential threat that climate change poses to Pacific Island nations. So it, 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 the way in which it seeps into apparently virtually every aspect of government policy is is quite striking. And that's certainly a part of its complexity, uh, but also its urgency. Yeah. And in a sense, I suppose we're all saying this, but that's really what this election did, is that it sort of marked the moment at which climate change become, became undeniable across all these other metrics as well. It it just became this this issue that that finally after a long time overwhelmed even what was beginning you know already an an evident uh, cost of living crisis that was always the big uh, you know the big block before that uh, you could get people to be concerned about climate change and 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 Labor and the Greens and others have had this problem through successive elections you could get people to be concerned about it but only up to the point where someone then said this is going to cost you more your energy prices are going to go up or you know your fuel prices are going to go up and it started tumbling down the list but here we had a situation where a cost of living crisis was already underway the government had acted to extend the low and middle income tax offset it had, uh, you know were halved federal fuel excise to get it through the election and so forth these were real reflections of the cost of living going up and yet at the same time Australians voted quite decisively as you say to address this climate change issue because it is no longer one that you can pretend can be dealt with later or that uh, can be dealt with by someone else yeah no no I agree I mean I think um 
I mean, it was that issue that got shortened, wasn't it? Do you remember the question yeah. of the 2019 election, how much are your policy is going to cost? Um, yeah, well, what, what are they going to do? Yeah. What, what's your modelling say about what it will do to economic growth? Yeah. And he just didn't really yeah. have an answer. Yeah, yeah, and, and in, in a sense, that question has kind of become redundant mm. because of the, again, the complexity and existential character, I think, of the issue. The thing that worried me about the way Labor handled that at the time was that the answer was actually a completely legitimate question, what's the cost of not acting? That's what they should have been saying much more forcefully. The cost of not acting on climate change is significantly greater than what we were proposing. And bear in mind, Labor took a 45% by 2030 cut to the 2019 election and had a lot longer to make the adjustment between 2019 and 2030 than we have in 2022 where Labor's proposal is 43%, pretty much the same. Um, and gets it through uh, a better, you know, a, a, an entirely better process that Labor went through this time. It had the support of the BCA, uh, the National Farmers Federation, uh, the Australian Industry Group. These are the major employer groups, as well as the ACTU and others. So there was a much better process of kind of girding this policy, of, of rooting it in, of founding it in, um, uh, in consult- consultation, getting getting sort of widespread buy-in for it, and 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 then being able to take it forward. Um, let me just uh, move quickly to a break, and, and uh, then we'll come back and continue this discussion. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, let's, we were talking about climate change. Let's stick with that for a moment because this discussion between the government, Maria, and the Greens is quite an interesting one. There's uh, not, not just in terms of the detail, which we can get into if you like, although there's not a lot around about that, but, but about the atmospherics. If we compare what happened, what is happening now to what happened in 2009, for example, when the Greens uh, held their position, did not vote for Kevin Rudd's carbon pollution reduction scheme, and we know a whole series of events cascaded after that, delivering us Tony Abbott and a decade of denial and everything. Um, on this occasion, Adam Bant is saying that his position on Labor's 43% cut is, you know, they want it to be a floor rather than a ceiling. In other words, the minimum that the government achieves by 2030 and that government can go further. Um, but he goes into it with a, a mindset of we want our, our disposition is to pass with improvements. So he's le- he, at least rhetorically, at least in a sort of a public relations sense, and let's hope there's more to it than that, but uh, they certainly know that they can't just be purer than the driven snow. 
um, and just not be prepared to negotiate. And to Chris Bowen's credit, he's also saying, well, if people come to us and they can uh, suggest ways in which we can be even clearer about what we're trying to achieve, we're very open to listening to that. So there's a, a much better sense um, of of constructive dialogue going on. Perhaps it does reflect the huge mandate that the Australian people have given legislators to actually finally get something done in this space, but it's it's quite different, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like structurally, I suppose, you know, Rudd, Rudd was interested in securing an agreement with Turnbull, you know, in, in the um, the original CPRS um, construction. Um, and that's actually where all the negotiations were really um, occurring and, and why the, you know, the, the target was 5% um, at the time, but the whole point of it was that it sort of effectively had a ratchet in it. It was like a framework which um, you could essentially add a ratchet to legislatively at a later date, even though I don't think it actually had an explicit ratchet in the in the legislation um, at the time. And I think this is a really, is this, this debate comes at a really interesting moment for the Greens, right, who are, as a party, um, you know, there is an internal debate going on within the Greens around, you know, I guess, you know, which happened before this result around how they kind of conduct themselves. Because I think if we look historically, the, the Greens have not been a very constructive or successful um, actor within the political space, if we compare them to other green parties around the world, you know, and the, the German Greens perhaps being the best or the most constructive, the most successful. When you say uh, successful, just to, just to interrupt briefly there, you, you mean successful in terms of changing laws. You don't necessarily yes, mean getting, successful getting in terms of holding on to their electoral wedge or their electoral, you know, slice of the vote. They've yes, been quite that's successful right. in that regard, haven't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say so, though, you know, I mean, like their vote has kind of bounced around. Um, but yes, they have, they have done a good job in sort of sustaining themselves. But I guess that's the thing about green politics, right? Like the joke about the greens is, you know, that they're watermelons, green on the outside, red on the inside. And that's glib and, and actually not true. It really depends on the, the jurisdiction and, and, and the parts of, you know, whichever part of the greens, like, you know, in specific parts of the country. But there is that sort of tension between, I guess, the old sort of left, Trotskyite left, um, that sort of split off from Labor. And kind of found a home uh, in the Greens around its sort of social politics and its sort of social welfare politics. And then there are, you know, the advocates who are, I guess, more interested in the environment and, and that difference between deep Greens and light Greens, you know, like Greens that essentially sort of looking for ways of looking for economic solutions to environmental problems and deep Greens who sort of think we should recast the sort of ecological um Way we organise society, um, and there are those Greens who who actually have uh, an aspiration to eventually be a party of government. Um, yes, and and, and those, for that, and, that and those are likely, yeah, that's right. Those are likely to be more inclined towards making incremental progress to establish a broader electoral base. And uh, I suppose it's going to be fascinating to see what happens to the Greens as a result of having made these incursions in Queensland. So there are now four lower house MPs. Uh, and those MPs are going to have to, um, you know, they represent they represent a broad electorate, a broad geographical electorate, rather than um, rather than a sliver of 
the vote that they the Greens have largely survived on getting to elect senators. These are lower house seats, and they represent, you know, as I say, a cross section of the population. And it will be fascinating to see whether that changes the character of the way the Greens approach some debates. Well, yeah, and to be perfectly blunt, you know, um, outside of Adam Bant's seat, like the Greens won these seats where there were, wasn't a teal independent. Hmm. And it remains to be seen whether or not if a teal independent showed up, whether or not people would actually vote for that teal independent over the, the Greens because of the uh, the question mark over the Greens' pragmatism and whether or not they are considered to be a reliable holder of the reins of, of governing power, that is, whether or not they are responsible actors. And, you know, if we look historically, the Greens have sort of struggled with incremental change, right, which cumulatively can add up to a great deal but which involves selling out because you don't achieve everything that you want to. And that's the great strength of the Greens is their sort of ideological passion and that's why they've been able to pick off Labor votes, right? But that's also their kind of weakness which is potentially what will stop them from being able to take a greater role at the heart of of government. And that's the sort of conundrum that they're facing. And so it's it will be interesting to see how much of the sort of saber rattling around no new coal mines. Well what that actually translates um, into and whether or not the Greens can actually manage that big debate internally over whether or not making deals with Labor that don't achieve everything the Greens want will actually be kind of palatable. To it's be so fair, difficult though, it's... to understand, though, as well, because yeah. they're, they're not transparent. Sorry, Mark, please. I oh, no, no. I, I'm sorry. I was interrupting you. Um, I was going to say, to be fair, though, no new coal mines makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's not oh, yeah. It's not a silly policy. What's actually logically silly is the idea of, of, um, of, of pursuing emissions cuts whilst adding to them uh, egregiously, and some of these proposals would do so. So, there's a there's a logical consistency to that position. It's just a question of how you actually deliver policy, how you make the adjustment. This is a bigger question, I suppose, for all lawmakers um, and political parties: is how do you actually uh, manage, steward the transition f- from the the fossil fuel based economy that we've had to the clean energy economy of the future with the minimum disruption to uh, to the economy and to local economies, which is an important thing, particularly because we have geographical electorates, uh, and also to uh, to the stability of the energy system, and 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 you know that has real implications as well. So, um, th- th- you know, uh, yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. They're legitimate oh, so- concerns. Yeah. So I guess I guess let me rephrase the the, the issue then. Do the Greens? create enough space for Labor to be able to actually deliver no new coal mines in uh, in effect rather than in name. So yeah. the Greens might pursue changes to environmental law that makes the ability to approve these mines very difficult. And that's the same effect as no new coal mines without saying – to the, uh, you know, the kind of constituencies that might vote coalition, um, you know, uh, that are currently held by Labor, that, you know, there's no future for your industries, right? Like, there are ways and ways. There are. Let's pivot from the Greens to the to the coalition, the opposition now. 
Peter Dutton made it very clear straight away after the election that uh, he wasn't going to be uh, supporting the legislating of the 43% cut that uh, Labor had been given the mandate for. Um, There are some Liberals, uh, Andrew Bragg, Senator from New South Wales, who has reserved his position, wants to see the legislation. Bridget Archer, the uh, moderate, uh, one of the few remaining moderate Liberals, uh, lower house member for Bass uh, in Tasmania. Um, She's also uh, been very clear about this. She did an excellent interview this morning that I heard uh, where she, you know, basically supports um, uh, faster action on climate change. She speaks from Tasmania where they have a lot of renewable energy, of course. Um, I'm wondering, will this end up being a, a rod for Peter Dutton's leadership. For a start, the as we've been discussing, the whole sort of zeitgeist in this country has shifted and the coalition was rejected largely on this ground. I mean, there's a few other solid grounds on which to reject it as well. I'm just wondering, you know, was this just blunt oppositionism and uh, his, his, his bad instincts taking over? Yeah, and, and I suppose it raises the question, you know, is he fighting some past war um, yeah. that is uh, animated by the success of Abbott as an opposition leader? Um, although it was only ever a half success because um, it was a term as opposition leader that um, didn't prepare them very well for government. But certainly the the, the success Abbott had um, as a destroyer of, yeah. of Labor governments a decade ago it must be a powerful um, sort of example, I suppose, or exemplar for, for yeah. uh, uh, certainly you know, a hard man of the right like Dutton whose instincts are politically belligerent anyway. Uh, but look, the, the world's moved on and uh, you know that was a, a pretty decisive result uh, in favour of uh, you know, strong action on climate change. I mean, Dutton will be gambling, I suppose, on a very unstable... Uh, strategic and economic environment internationally, yeah. shifting views around this. You know, the yeah, the cost of living crisis continuing, yeah. the Ukraine, energy, ener- yeah, Ukraine yeah. Uh, yeah. continuing, energy prices becoming yeah. more and more a uh, front of mind issue for people, and yeah. and and voters then perhaps blaming the government for uh, you know for for ideological policy rather than for protecting their their hip pockets. That sort of standard kind of. That, that was essentially the formula that Abbott was uh, mm. was following, wasn't it? It's interesting, um, Maria, that uh, uh, Howard, John Howard, Tony Abbott, and Amanda Vanstone, all you know, names from the past, uh, addressed the Liberal Party room yesterday. Uh, Might have been this morning, actually, um, and uh, as we speak, uh, and um, you know, uh, gave them wisdom on how to get through opposition, how to keep your chin up, and how to fight your way back, but. I don't know. As Frank was just saying, uh, you, you'd be wanting, wanting to question pretty solidly the relevance of of Howard. I, I guess it was Howard Mark II speaking rather than the first time he was opposition leader, which was a debacle. Um, and uh, and uh, and and Abbott. Well, let's face it: if he's going to relive the Abbott years, that's uh, not going to be pleasant for anyone. Yeah, actually, you know, John Howard addressing the party room is is really kind of interesting because. If we look at, um, I suppose, comparative periods of opposition, there is a lot more in common, I think, with the 1983 result right now than there was after 2007. Like 2007, that loss in many ways reminded me a lot more of what happened in 1972 and the opposition ended up behaving in a similar manner to what it did in 1972. And by that I mean it boiled down to them not really accepting that Labor had a 
right to rule mm. um, because of the minority parliament in, in effect um, in the first case because, you know, how dare people elect Labor? They've been captured by madness. Um, well, and, many people just uh, couldn't imagine it. I mean, it's been since 1949 the, the, the coalition yeah, had been in charge. So, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, and there wasn't really any sort of serious thinking about what a coalition government would look like and and the Fraser years beyond the sort of um, bedding down of some of the sort of social policy um, reforms that Whitlam had introduced and, and some significant um, moves on multiculturalism and rhetoric around small government, you know, the Fraser government didn't achieve very much. What was really challenging, I suppose, for the Liberals in the 80s was that, you know, Labor moved to kind of really occupy their ground and in some ways and, and, and a large part of that was due to events. Like global events had simply played out. We'd had, you know, it was a decade after the oil shocks. It had broken the old consensus. You know, people were um, – uh, living through a recession with, I think, near 10% unemployment. Frank will know the exact number. Um, you know, people people ready for, for a change, ready for um, something new. And I think we, we've sort of reached a similar point in the zeitgeist now. People kind of understand that things simply cannot return to the state that they had been. Too much has changed. Yeah. Um, you know, things need to be different. But what I suppose is potentially kind of really interesting is that, you know, Albanese is a prime minister from the left and Dutton is um, an opposition leader from the right. And, you know, and, and like the coalition is pretty much dominated by the LNP, you know, that, that party room is overwhelmingly dominated by the LNP. The Nationals um, are a huge block in the joint party room now, comparative to the rest of the, the yeah, group. Yeah, because they didn't lose any seats, whereas the Liberal Party got sort of gutted in uh, its homeland. You know, yeah, yeah, land. yeah, that's right. Like, if you look at their, their holdings in New South Wales and, and Victoria, I mean, I think they might just WA. add up to what they hold, exactly, what they hold in, in Queensland. So, so... You know, so I th- I I do think it will be really interesting to see whether or not a leadership team of two men from Queensland can work out a way to talk to enough of the rest of the electorate in the rest of the country because you know their strategy is pretty obvious. They best case scenario or you know best case scenario they they win government, but you know like. A good win for them would be reducing labor to minority by picking off some of labor's outer suburban which, seats. And which become- worked in uh, that's right, but it worked in in uh, two thousand and ten, didn't it? Two thousand and nine, when Abbott took over from Turnbull, and um, they they reduced the. I mean, I think Labor did that to themselves. Well, I was you know? going to say and a little I, help from yeah, the Labor Party, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think we, you know, like lots of people like to blame the Greens for failing to support the CPRS, but honestly, why didn't Rudd back his own policy? Why didn't he go to the election? I, I why still didn't think, he call a double dissolution election? Precisely. Yeah, you know, yeah. I still think he wears most of the blame. For oh that, yeah, that's true. Know? That's true. But I mean, I, th- there was a fair bit to be said for uh, the role of climate change policy in that whole unwinding of Rudd's leadership. I mean, I was at Copenhagen in two thousand and nine, shortly after that uh, was initially voted down, and uh, you know, it, there was a sort of an unraveling of the government. Then people went into the Labor Party. People went into the Christmas period thinking that Rudd was going to emerge from from that summer break and call a double D and that they were going to fight it on climate. Instead, he'd written a children's book. And um, 
and, and then he said, you know, what, what had been the Great Mole Challenge suddenly became something you could park. And, it, you know, things unfolded from there. You, you know, you don't know at any given moment what the impact of of your actions are down the track as a political party. But I think looking back on it, we can we can see at least a causal relationship between a series of decisions in which which you know I think crucially begin with the um, failure of the CPRS and with a whole bunch of sort of oh, bad, bad decisions that happen absolutely after that. It's totally a sliding doors moment yeah yeah um look d- just uh, in the time we got left Frank I mean raising uh, going off Maria's point about you know uh, those historical comparisons Anthony Albanese is very strongly referenced 1983 himself. He's 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 likened he he he's picked up some of those ideas of of Bob Hawke, the idea of unity as distinct from division. That that Fraser had been a divisive prime minister because, of course, he got there by the most divisive way possible, the constitutional crisis in '75, and that really framed his his persona for that whole seven and a half eight years that he was the prime minister. Uh, Bob Hawke comes in, the great conciliator. It's all about the, the slogan was bring Australians together or bring Australia together. Um, there was summits. And it seems like um, Anthony Albanese has sort of tried to reference a number of those things. We know we've got a jobs summit coming up in September. He talks about unity. He was saying it uh, in, in his speech to caucus on, on Monday of this week. Uh, he said it again at the launch. He's talking about the Uluru Statement from the Heart as a unifying mo- uh, moment and framing the Republic push down the track after that as a unifying moment. There, there, there are elements, it seems to me, I'm sorry about the length of this question, there are elements, it seems to me, about Albanese's early persona that he is drawing the good parts from the three prime ministers or the four, I suppose, you know, to some extent Whitlam's passion Hawke's cabinet government and consensus and all of that sort of stuff, and then the lessons of what where Labor kind of went off the rails in the Rudd-Gillard period, and he was, you know, kind of one of the few people trying to really hold it together during that period, and he's trying to alchemise all of that into into a new and successful political formula. Yeah, look, Mark, I think you sum it up really well. Um, yeah, I mean, clearly draw something from Hawke. Uh, the the, the Hawke. Um, well, the Hawke Keating era generally remains attractive to a Labor leader because of the, the electoral success. Labor has never been more successful electorally at the national mm. level than during those years, and and the capacity of of um, those governments during the eighties and early nineties for reform that that you know as each government got in. They achieve something new. I mean, Keating was still doing it in the in the early nineteen nineties. So that's attractive if you want to change the country. Look into and and yes, the the job summit probably owes something to the national summit of of April nineteen eighty three in in its kind of and um, even the climate basic, change policy yeah. as we've discussed before. You know the way he yeah. got he got he pulled warring interests together in order to find a compromise position people could live with and yeah. then takes that forward. So there's a legitimacy in that. There is, um, but look, I, I actually think he's in a lot of ways more a child of the Whitlam era. Um, he was a protege of Tom Uren, mm. who, who um, you know, perhaps more than most uh, uh, members of that government represents the kind of expansive, ambitious uh, aspect, you know, in, in Uren's case, particularly around urban policy. Uh, Albanese does talk about 
um, universalism in a way that's, I think, reminiscent of Whitlam. I'm thinking they're particularly of aspects of their childcare yeah. policy um, where it was most explicit. Um, and I, I just think generally there is a, a consciousness partly through um, his own personal background, of which he's had, you know, he's said a lot about it, um, about the importance of public goods, actually, um, you know, in, in a way that's, you know, not some sort of reheated Whitlamism, but I, I think that that, that exemplar um, remains actually quite important to him emotionally and, and also to some extent intellectually too. There were times during that campaign where he sounded like, uh, uh, well, he sounded unlike any other Labor leader since Whitlam, actually, and that surprised me. I, I only really noticed it quite late in the campaign, particularly around discussions of childcare. Um, they've got this problem, of course, that they're wedded to a more aggressive, a regressive income tax system, and that—that mm. that is really. I mean, the most appalling economic management when you consider income tax is an instrument of macroeconomic management. Mm. And, you know, we're about to cut taxes in an inflationary environment. It is crazy. Um, it's a shocker. But they're, it is. they're it wedded is. to it. They're mm. wedded to this uh, politically. I mean, it's 1993, 94 that, that, that is the exemplar for them there where, you know, the, the tax cuts that, that the Keating government abandoned and they don't want that to be used against them politically. So, yeah, they remain committed to them. They will be an incubus, though. This know. is the LAW yeah, uh, tax cuts that, uh, that that one minute were law and and, and yeah. then were later abandoned. When Dawkins was was treasurer, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. no, a good point, mm. Maria, isn't it? Um, there is, but you know that universalism that uh, Frank talks about. There was there's some there's some Keating in there as well. I mean, you know, around the universalism of super, superannuation, for example, and uh, and framing. Childcare as very much an economic policy of removing a capacity constraint within the economy. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm looking forward to them doing this so we can actually move on to a proper discussion around, you know, childcare, right? Like, yes, sure, it's all about empowering women and getting them back into the workforce. But, you know, the, the, there's, the reason why uh, Scandinavian countries have the sort of gold standard uh, parental leave arrangements is because it actually recognizes the reality of what it's like to have young children. And that is that they get sick all the time. And that's why it's a two year period where both parents are basically encouraged to take leave. So I, I look forward to getting this done so we can then actually move on to the next stage of this policy discussion, which acquaints itself with reality. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. Well, look, it's been a terrific discussion. There is so much more to discuss, and we're going to be discussing it over uh, over coming weeks and months because uh, many of these things, as the government tries to move forward, will be um, uh, you know will be will have their difficult moments and have their complexities. Uh, as we said at the start, there's a there's a giant cross bench now in the lower house. The government, of course, has a majority in its own right. So numerically, they're important, but morally, they are very uh, unimportant, but morally, they're quite significant. Um, and uh, I know the government has um, rearranged the, uh, the the schedule so that a number of those teal or community new community candidates can give their first speeches on the first Tuesday night, which is tonight as we record this, um, at, at freeing them up then so they can participate. Having done their what used to be called maiden speeches, they can then participate in the um, in the debate around uh, the forty three percent climate target or emissions target, and and uh, and on other things. So, I think. 
you know, notwithstanding the friction over staffing, um, the government will be well advised to be taking very seriously the electoral and moral heft that um, uh, these new crossbenchers represent. And um, and we'll see, as we discussed at the start, whether whether they're a permanent feature or not. I think most of those people will be because they're just going to be very good candidates and MPs. Um, thanks again for your participation, Frank. Thank you, Mark. Always great to have pleasure. you along. And thank you, as usual, Maria. Oh, thank you. And welcome back to work, Frank. Oh, yes. It all began yesterday. Thanks, Maria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Long may it be so. Yeah. Okay, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Look forward to your company again next week. Thanks to the Crawford School of Public Policy, which, of course, facilitates this podcast each week. Uh, brilliant uh, resources and expertise that they bring to bear to make this happen. And we thank them from the bottom of our hearts. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.